Okay, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 10. We're back at it. Uh, rumor has it um, that a couple weeks ago, was it two weeks ago, that someone preached here and was um, imitating me. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how else to say that. <laughs> and the one, you know who outed him? His son. His two sons come running up to me after church when I came here last Sunday, and they were just like, you're never going to guess what my dad did. And I go, really? What did your dad do? And then I heard what their dad did, right? And the worst part about it, though, was I heard y'all laughed at it. That's the absolute worst part about it. Something about coming up and praying and being a little close and certain things that I say and certain mannerisms that I have. That's all I'm going to say, people. Yeah, thanks a lot. Okay, so let's take a trip. Let's say you're from Pennsylvania. Let's pretend, right? You're from the coal regions of Pennsylvania, towns founded because of coal many, many years ago. Uh, today, these regions have old mines that are like subterranean snakes that just weave and dodge and coil through miles and miles of land and valleys and over hills and around streams in these coal regions. Uh, that are now since forgotten and abandoned. Let's say you and your friends go exploring, adventuring, right? We're going on a bear hunt. We're going to catch a big one. We're not scared, right? And uh, you walk across this grassy hill, and as you do, the ground beneath you just gives way, and you start falling. You've fallen into a mine shaft. When you finally land, you're 30 feet down, and you're battered, you're bruised, you're bloody, but most of all, you're trapped. There's no way out. As you slowly come to your concussed wits, um, you, you hear people, your friends yelling up there, you hear them moving things around, you heard something about an old rope, finding an old rope, and you hear like, we're sending it down. And you see the rope, and hope, <laughs> hope blooms in the darkness, right? And as the, low, the rope is lowered all the way down, you look up, and you're five feet too short. Yeah, it's one of those kind of stories, right? Some of us think this morning that this is how God works. This is how God works in your life. This is how God works in the world. This is how God changes you. This is how God reaches you. This is how God connects to you. God does everything but the last five feet. Others of us don't think this way. We're a little more theologically nuanced. We have a little more biblical training. Uh, we're a little more doctrinally precise. But when we functionally build our relationship around God, it's around God doing everything but the last five feet. When we go to our parenting, our parenting is God does everything but the last five feet. When we try to deal with our love life and our relationships and the way that we uh, handle our career and the way that ministries are built, it's built around God doing everything but the last five feet. And because of this, we have what the Bible calls a lack of the fear of God. Now, the fear of God is that we were talking about in the new members class is not fearing God, like panic-stricken fear. The fear of God, what's one of the most dominating emotions you can have? 
Have you ever been afraid? I mean, like, really afraid. Like, panic kind of afraid. You try to control yourself when you're afraid. The fear of God takes the most dominating emotion and turns it into something that's absolutely life-giving. The fear of God is being completely dominated by life and magnificence. In fact, one writer says it this way, fearing God is not mere belief in Him. It's to be so filled with joyful awe before the magnificence of God that we tremble at the privilege of knowing Him and serving Him and pleasing Him. In other words, it's this trembling trust that is a combination of magnificence and majesty, and that this one who is infinitely magnificent and majestic loves me. Looks at me. The psalmist says, he has thoughts towards me that outnumber the sands on the sea. That's how much he thinks about me. And when that gets down into your bones, you tremble with life, with joy. You come alive, and that's called the fear of God. This idea that God does everything but the last five feet cannot produce that. It doesn't have the power to do that in your life. You know what power, though, it does have? It has the power to produce no real need for God in your life. That's why another writer says, it's the essence of failing to believe, not that God exists, but that he matters. Well, I want to welcome you to Romans 10, because Romans 10 is taking you to a God that matters, that matters so much that he's so magnificent and he's so merciful, you tremble at the joy of it. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. A reading from the epistle to the Romans, chapter 10, verses 5 through 21. But Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says... Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or, who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. For they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, 
Have they not heard? Indeed, have they, for their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? For as Moses says, I will make you, a, uh, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bald as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have, not my, uh, I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. The word of the Lord. Be Please be seated. So Lord, we ask that you would shine on the page. We ask, uh, as, as your word says, that the unfolding of your words gives light. Would you give light? Would you enlighten the eyes of the heart? Would you heal us? Would you reach us? Would you restore us? And we ask this in your name, amen. Okay, so where are we? Where are we in Romans? Uh, here's where we are. <clears throat> Romans 1 through 8 is asking one question. What is the gospel? Romans 12 through 16 is asking another question. If you believe chapters 1 through 8, if you believe the gospel, what does a gospel life look like? And then you have these confusing, muddled chapters of 9 through 11. They're so confusing that some folks actually don't want them a part of Romans, and they've actually removed them from Romans. But there is a, there is a theme, there is a DNA, there is a bloodline that runs through 9 through 11 that's attached to the rest of the book, and that's this question, can God's word fail? Look at verse 6. Do you see it in verse 6? But it's not as though the word of God has failed. Can God's word fail? And the answer from 9 through 11 is no, of course not, right? And then Paul goes in to give all these answers. But I want to put a little twist on it just in terms of reviewing here. But what if, what if Paul said this? But what if people connect to God based on their performance or based on their race or their nationality or their moral goodness? Then yes, God's word does fail. But what Paul says in verses 6 through 8 is, it's not based on your performance. No one connects to God based on their performance or their race or their nationality. They connect to God based on His performance, which is called grace. So no, God's Word doesn't fail. But what if God's Word merely conveys information? Then yes, of course God's words fail. But Paul in Romans 9 says, but God's Word does not merely convey information. It gets things done. God's speaking and His acting are the same thing. So God's words and His actions go together. You don't come to a, a lecture. You don't come to a conveyor of information when you come to the Scriptures. You come to the active presence of God being released into the world, right? Okay, so, but what if messed up people save themselves? Then of course God's Word fails. But Paul says in verses 10 through 29, but messed up people do not save themselves. God saves them. So no, God's word does not fail. You get the logic? Now there's an overriding answer that summarizes everything that's going on here in 9 through 11. And we've, we've, we've teased it out. We went through those hard chapters of chapter 9. Remember how much fun we had in there? And how we came up to two major ideas that you they're asymmetric and they got to be kept together. If you don't keep these ideas together, if they spin off, they, they spin off the axis and they go into a world of weirdness. What are they? God is the author of our salvation. We are the authors of our sin, death, and condemnation. 
period. Two asymmetric ideas that must be kept together. If you don't, you will spin off into the weirdness of fate and determinism. The religious brand is called hyper-Calvinism, and some views a double predestination. The irreligious is more like fate. It's more like karma. It's more like uh, some cosmic force. It's more like the Greek pantheon of gods. And today, even in psychology and psychiatry, it could be something like this. This is fate. This is determinism. You are completely a helpless victim to your driving impulses, to your psychological drives, and your brain chemicals. I'm sorry. It's fate. You're determined by them. See how this works? The other side, though, if you spin off, you spin off into a view that says, look, you save yourself. Religiously, it'd be called Pelagianism or work salvation or God's as sovereign as I let him be. Irreligiously, it's like I'm the maker of my own meaning. Within me, I have the resources to generate my own salvation. I have the resources to deal with my own messes and flaws. I have the resources to, to shape an identity. I have the resources to discover and plummet the depths of well-being and freedom and happiness and life. I am the master of my fate, right? Okay, so now we come to chapter 10. And here's what's being asked of chapter 10. If God is the author of our salvation, how is he the author of our salvation? In other words, how does God save us in real time, in real history? Like Larry, how did, how does God reach you and me for the first time to become a Christian and for the millionth time as a Christian? How does God reach, renew, save, pick your biblical word, you and me in real history, in real time and space, in places like right now, here. How does he do that? Now, there's another thing we need to be aware of as we're asking that question. There's another question that, that lurks like a Nazgul if you are a Lord of the Rings fan or a Dementor if you are a Harry Potter fan. And it's okay, folks. You can be fans of both. Some of you are a little weird on me. It's like you picked sides, and I'm like, what? How can you do that? Just for what it's worth. All right, but it's this. How are we the author of our sin? How are we the author of our death? How are we the author of our condemnation? That, that dementor is just off stage in this passage. So front stage, on the stage, is how does God save us? How does he reach us and renew us, certainly to become Christians and then also, as a Christian, how does he do that? But then lurking off the shadows off stages, how are we the authors of our own death, our own sin, our own condemnation? Are you with me? That's the passage. So how does God save us in real time? Let's get into the text, verses 9 through 11. Uh, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, notice what will happen. You will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. You know what that means? Remember what shame is? Shame is that deep, painful, debilitating feeling that you're not good enough, that you're exposed as being unacceptable. When God saves you, you're never put to 
shame. Why? Because he makes you acceptable. Now, believing that and having that push into our experience is one thing. But the fact that at the all end of time, you will never before God, the most magnificent being in all the world, be put to shame. You will never, ever before God at the end of the world feel that painful feeling of not being good enough. It's pretty powerful. Let's move on. All right, so verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's kind of weird what's going on here. In fact, some folks have really gone bizarre. It's crazy how this happens, but you know, it happens. The mouth is confessing and calling here, right? The heart's believing here. These are not two separate things going on. These are one thing going on, just being looked at from two different angles. One's being looked at from the angle of the mind. The other's being looked at from the angle of the heart. But it's one unified faculty called the soul or called the inner person, called the personality. Pick your word. But it's just a different angle. You're looking at the heart and you look at its understanding faculty. You look at the heart and you look at its trusting faculty. That's what's happening here. What's the one thing going on here? Well, the one thing going on here is how God saves you and me in real time, in time and space, in your personal history for the first time and for even right now. Faith. Faith. He saves you through faith. So it's kind of like this. How do you know like God's at work? Where is God? How do you know he's present? How do you know he's actively at work in your life? How do you know he's at work in a family, in a marriage? How do you know he's at work in a church? The answer, according to Paul, is faith is there. Wherever faith is present, you can know God is at work. Do you see how simple that is and how powerful that is? So it's not because people raise their hands. Oh, God's there. It's not because you have certain kind of music. Oh, God's there. It's not because of the certain ministries and the programs that you have. Oh, God's at work. The scripture says you can know that God's at work when the miracle of all miracles happen. People have faith. That's astounding. So the question is what? What is faith? I mean, that's just begging this text, right? Look at verse 6 and 7. But the righteousness based on faith says, this is what faith says. This is what biblical faith says. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven or who will descend into the abyss. So here's the point. Whatever faith is, it has given up on ascending and descending. Faith says no more. No more trying to ascend, and no more descending, no more doing, no more dying. But that's what we do all the time. I told you I have certain books that I read over and over again, um, and some of you are like, well, that's a short book. You're still reading Rosemary Miller from Fear to Freedom? It's a little paperback. I said, yes, I still am, because here's how I read it. When I read these books that I read, like, never stop reading, I'm not reading to get through it. I'm reading like sentences and paragraphs. It is a meditative, reflective reading. 
And every time I read these certain kind of books, and you want these, these are your friends. I, Dr. Hannah used to tell us, listen, and it was amazing how he let an insight into pastoral ministry. He said, there will be a time in your life, there will be a time in your ministry, there will be a time or a season in you that will be so painful, and no one will understand you. No one will be able to have compassion and commiserate with you. And this is what he said, even if you're married your own wife. So what do you do, gentlemen? You grab a book. Because there is someone, someone who understands you. You find those books, and you never stop reading them. Now, this is one of those books, and she describes this neurotic need that we have to ascend and descend, this neurotic drive we all have to do and die. But she's describing it, how it worked out in her, her mother. Um, she says this, when someone experiences huge upheavals as she did, her mother, and there is only a stern moral or religious base to lean on, then the effect can be disastrous. She, my mother, saw God's love and acceptance as conditional, dependent upon blameless behavior. So instinctively then, she knew she had to defend her innocence at all costs. She needed to work hard at self-protection and self-justification. She built up her own private mental world and walled my dad from her life because what ended up happening when they were originally married, she had uh, earned some money and they were putting it aside for something and he came in one day, took the money and spent it on something. And that was cataclysmic in their marriage. And that's what she's talking about here. She would rehearse the problem over and over. This is what she would say, her mother would say, can you imagine? To anybody who would listen, and then, and then, and then to herself when nobody else was around. Can you imagine? Let me tell you what dad did. Then after her tale of dad's guilt was completed, she would irrationally attack herself, blurting out, you accuse yourself, you accuse yourself. Sounds like Golem. You and I do this all the time. We are doing and dying all the time. We are ascending and descending all the time. And faith says, enough. No more. No more ascending. No more descending. No more doing. No more dying. What is faith? Well, it's not ascending, and it's not descending. So what else is it? Well, let's keep going, because Paul keeps going. Whatever it is, it's not irrational, too. It's not spiritually weird. <laughs> it's not for the spiritual elite who have their secrets and have their 10 steps, and they have their five steps to whatever, and their experiences with mystical signs and wonders and some secret of the Holy Spirit. It is none of that. Watch how real faith is. Faith involves our minds. Look at verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. 13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So faith involves real content, real content to be understood by your mind, real content for your mind to comprehend. The Puritans would say real content that that lights up your understanding. It gives clarity to your mind. It's stuff that you actually comprehend and perceive. It's stuff that, that is real. 
Faith has clarity to the mind. It has enough clarity to the mind that you're able to verbalize it. Do you see it? That's why the mouth is confessing. The mouth is able to confess what the mind has been able to comprehend. What is faith? Whatever it is, it's not only not irrational, it's not only rational. Ah, this is what our camp needs to hear, right? Because we love the rational part. Good night. We love our doctrinal statements. Faith is not only irrational, which means it's not only intellectual, which means it's not just checking a statement of faith. It means it's not just believing traditional beliefs. It's not just arguing for orthodoxy. Faith involves our hearts, verse 9. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Verse 10, for with the heart one believes and is justified. Do you see this? So faith involves real content, but it's real content that's trusted by the heart. Real content that's treasured by the heart. Real content that's made real in your heart. It's like Edwards used to say, he says, listen, I can I can try to describe for you what honey tastes like, but you got to taste it. I can give you a doctrinal statement on Christianity, but you got to taste it. N.T. Wright calls the heart in this passage the very core of our personality. So faith has enough realness in the heart that it touches the core of your personality. That's pretty deep. So what is faith? Faith has real content that the mind comprehends, the mind understands, the mind is engaged in, it's clarity to the mind, and faith has real content that the heart trusts, that the heart senses, that is brought home to the heart, that the heart experiences, the heart treasures. And so the the issue is what is that content, right? What's the real content? And it's found in verse 9. Look at it. It's pretty profound. Jesus is Lord, God raised him from the dead. These words are the real content. The real content is, in other words, the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus is Lord. This is a breathtaking statement. What Paul says in Jesus is Lord is that he's saying Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is the king of the cosmos. God, supreme authority, supreme power, supreme magnificence. In fact, when Paul writes in his other letters, he says, listen, Jesus has ascended so high, he's above every name, every control in the world, every power, every force, good, evil, bad, indifferent, you, your sin struggles, he's above it. And then he goes, God raised him from the dead. And this is about the work of Christ. This is about what Christ does, specifically in the context of what we've been looking at in Romans. This is about the cross work, that Jesus' work on the cross was so cataclysmic and so epic and so universal that it destroyed and rescued all at the same time. It destroys death. It destroys sin. It destroys condemnation and then rescues people that are wrapped up in it. And it's done it's accomplished. And then it's this righteousness work, right? This thing that's this righteousness from God, this received righteousness, not an achieved righteousness, except Jesus achieves it. 
And so when Jesus is raised from the dead, you know what's happening there? What's happening when Jesus is raised from the dead is what should have happened to Adam. If Adam would have believed, God would have raised him and exalted him. And so the second Adam comes along, and he's the only human being to ever live a righteous life on the whole planet, and God justifies him, raises him from the dead. And faith says, wow, I'm, um, I'm getting that, and I trust that. No more ascending, no more descending, because someone already has. How does God save us in real time? Through faith. And some of you all are thinking, yeah, listen, Jeff, I know that, and I still can't believe this Christian stuff, though. And that's fair. So the only thing I want to say is this, but did you know that, that faith is not just a Christian thing? It's a human thing. That every single human has faith with clarity to the mind and trust in the heart in something. And you know this. Even if you don't don't believe that Christianity, you don't put your faith in Christianity, you know you have your faith in something. Everyone here, if you just think about it for one second, knows you, you put your faith in something. You know, for some of us, like in our culture today, I mean, it's, it's... it's romance. It's faith in romance. Romance is huge. I mean, listen to the songs on the radio. Listen to the shows that get all the attention on TV. Listen, watch the books, the sales. It's romance. Romance is, romance is going to save us. Human love and human intimacy. And that's why some of us are in relationships we should never be in. But we feel almost compelled to. That's why there's books upon books upon all these family relational dynamics called codependency. Why are we codependent? Because we're, we need them. We have faith in human love and romance and intimacy. I said in the first service, so I'm going to say it here, and, and I'm sort of joking. This is why we watch The Bachelor. <laughs> now my wife's going to kill me for that one. I'm sorry, I didn't mean it, sort of. Um, I heard on the radio the other day that you know what the number one group, the number one growing group of The Bachelor, you know that show's been around forever and it's still growing and people coming on. You know what the number one group is? Men. Men watching that. I can't figure that one out. But anyhow, it happens. (laughs) Faith and romance is why we have serial boyfriends and girlfriends and spouses. That's why we keep moving on after the initial rush, because there's an initial relational rush. If you've had a boyfriend or a girlfriend, you've been married, you know there's that. What a gift that God gives us. But then it goes away, but you still want more. So next, next, next. For others of us, though, it's not faith in romance. It's not faith in human love and intimacy. It's faith in reason. It's whatever makes sense to you and me. All the advancements in technology, man, our faith as a country is in that. Our faith in science, the certainty of science, this is why we are so certain of our beliefs as teenagers, then we're so certain of different beliefs in our 20s, and then we're still so certain of even different beliefs when we're parents, 
And that's why in a midlife, we have a midlife crisis because we're not certain of anything. That's what happens. Because it's faith and reason. We put all of our hopes and our happiness and our salvation and reason, right? So how does God save in real time? The Apostle Paul says through faith, but he's not done. So let's keep going. Look at verse 8. What does it say? Do you see verse 8? But what does it say? But what does what say? What's talking here? The answer is faith again. Faith says in verse 8 what? Let's say it together. The word is near you. Oh, now, it's almost like um, when that's said, we should all go, what just happened? It's that kind of moment in the text when Paul says, faith says, the word is near you. Everyone goes, okay, what does that mean first? (laughs) Because everything's hanging on what that means. What does that mean? The word for word here is rhema, not logos. If you, those of you who have had any sense of logos, there's logos everything, logos bookstores, logos Bible software, because it's the thing for word, right? So the plethora of word is everybody takes the Greek word, which is logos, which is why? Because logos is used all over the scriptures, but rhema is incredibly unusual and incredibly rare. It hardly ever shows up. And so when it does, people scratch their head and they go, what does that mean? Well, it's the rhema is near you. It's not the logos. So this is the rare. This is the, this is the unusual. This is the unexpected. So what is it? Well, some folks think it's so unusual and so, so unexpected, they've turned it into this hidden knowledge that you can get from God that God kind of downloads to certain special people. And you might be one of those certain special people. You get downloaded this direct mediation. God goes, rhema. And you get this rhema. And now you feel like compelled that you've got to go tell everybody what the rhema is for them and what the rhema... That's just, that's just stupid. <laughs> I'm sorry. Second service, I get a little unwound. But I'm forgiven. I'm going to keep going. But the older meaning is more mysterious. The older meaning is much more mysterious. I'm going to let one biblical scholar explain it. Faith comes from the message. He's referring to verse 17. And the message occurs through the word which is near you. What is that word? The word that has come down from heaven. The word that has come up from the depths of death. The word that is the Messiah himself. The word that is God's self-revelation in person. (laughs) That word is near you. How near? You don't have to ascend anymore. You don't have to descend anymore. Your doing and dying days are done. It's done. It's finished. How near? Don't miss this. It's in your mouth and in your heart. That's how near. That's how close. That's how real. All throughout this passage, the gospel message and the active presence of Jesus are confused. 
It's a weird passage because you look at the commentaries, they're confused. You look at pastors as they preach it, they're confused. You look at students and scholars of the Bible and they're confused. Nobody can figure out, okay, what's going on here? Is this the message being talked about or is this the person of Jesus being talked about? Let's just take, for example, look at verse 8. Twice rhema is used and people don't know. Like, is it uh, rhema? Is, Is it the message or is it Jesus? And then he goes on to say, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. Is that the word, the rhema of faith? Is that the the rhema that produces faith, or is that the, the message, well, the content of faith? People spilling ink like crazy over this. Go down to verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed, and how are they to believe in him?